You're listening to SkippyCast. I'm David McPhee. Cast is a podcast about hobo-like travel. Thanks for downloading this episode six. We're going to take a ride on the Dirty Dog, or as it's better known, the Greyhound Coach, that slick silver blue icon of the American highways and byways. At least that's the way I like to think about it. Before I got to the States, I was well used to hopping on a bus either to cross town or for several hours across country. Public transport didn't hold any stigma for me. It was just an economical and somewhat leisurely way to get from A to B. So when I needed a ride from Auburn, Alabama to school in Columbia, Missouri, I didn't see it as a problem to plonk down $44, at least that's what I think it cost, for a ticket to ride. My ex-wife, however, was not so confident. Her conservative mother equally so. They just couldn't wrap their heads around why I would want to do that. I remember hopping onto that bus one sunny August afternoon with nothing but a sense of adventure. And an adventure it was. I mean, I can laugh now, and I still have a deep love and affection for coaches and Greyhound in general, but that trip was some form of unholy hell, to the point where the memory of it feels as fresh today as it was in 1999. The details just seemed to stick. The almost three-hour delay after getting bumped from a bus in Birmingham, Alabama, the compensation of a meal allowance sufficient to cover a burger and fries from the station cafeteria, sharing a cigarette on the empty streets with a homeless guy, my first introduction to poverty in black America and the big but empty cities of the South, the rolling road through small towns that seemed straight out of a Steinbeck novel, seeing my first Amish in St. Louis, Missouri, the lack of comfort, the smells, including being witness to someone using the onboard toilet that involved shrieks and laughter at around two in the morning, the sheer joy of it all coming to an end over 20 hours later and swearing never again, at least until the memory faded and I did it again a few months later. Greyhound was awful, but amazing at the same time. The people were incredible, and remember, this was some of my first interactions in the US. And that leads me to the interviewee, Bobby Abramson. While looking for a good article on Greyhound, I found a 2013 Vice story titled Riding the Dirty Dog, and the main picture grabbed me. It was the side of a Greyhound bus at night and a man sleeping, and it brought back all of those memories. That picture was taken by Bobby Abramson for his 2001 road trip across the U.S. by Greyhound for his book One Summer Across America. That was my Greyhound. That was my time. And I read on and it was great. And I'll leave the link in the show notes because the article's still out there. But as funny as it was, it wasn't Bobby's story. The story was by Aaron Lake Smith. The pictures have been paired with it because he had traveled around at the same time, also using an Ameripass. Now, I won't spoil it for you, but it was gritty and interesting. It has a rebellious streak where he fakes an Ameripass using Kinko's, reminding me of all those scams in my youth, like counterfeit subway tokens or angling your smart rider bus pass so it mispunches and you get a free ride on Transperth. Now, that last reference was very specific to Western Australia in the early 1980s. So when I first emailed Bobby in 2018, I thought I was speaking to the author, but of course I wasn't. And that's when I researched his book, and that's when I realized that Bobby was the person that I wanted to speak to. His book is amazing, and it really captures the time and place. Now, this is a two-part episode, and it had to be because it's long. But I hope it's worth it. It certainly was to me. 
thank you, Bobby, for joining me. I appreciate you uh, coming on my show. It has been some time since I first started to talk to you, and now finally we've got it together. Yeah, well, I'm I'm excited to share my story with you and your listeners. So uh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, well, let's just say listener for now. Uh, we're, we're building. Okay. We're building. <laughs> now, well, I, I came across you because I actually came across an article called Riding the Dirty Dog. Now, that article is not about you. No. Um, you don't represent any similarity to the person in that article whatsoever, right? Because he was, a, I think he used a fake pass and everything else, but he did use your photos. Yeah, well, yeah, it wasn't. I mean, I think Vice contacted me. I, I don't remember if it was the writer or Vice themselves. Somehow somebody knew about my book. And they knew that it would be good illustration for the story. I think the two things happened completely separate is uh, is accurate. You know, what he wrote and why he wrote, it didn't it didn't have to do with my photography and my photography didn't have to do with his uh, article. But there are there are definitely crossovers there. Well, it, it provides the accent. I yeah. Think. And, and I mean, I think the fascination with the people and the stories of the people on the bus is um, something that we both. I think was what was driving him. And I think it was a, a he that wrote that story. It was. I think that was what was driving him. And certainly what was driving me was an opportunity to, to meet and photograph people on the bus, you know, so. So so what actually is your background? Because like I say, I was a bit confused about who exactly I was reaching out to at first, but I'm glad that I got to you because I, I really did enjoy your book. But uh, so what is your background? I mean, who is Bobby Abrahamson? Abramson. Abramson. Okay. I will. Uh, that's probably accent as much as. I no, can. no, no. It's, it looks like it's spelled that I usually spell it out that way to people when I tell them what it is, but uh, it's uh, yeah, it's got a silent. Say, say it for me one more time so I can uh, remember. Just drop the ham. I like to say it's a silent kosher ham. So uh, a- <laughs> Abramson. Abram. Abramson. Yeah, exactly. A- got it. Abramson. Uh, anyway, uh, my background is I. Uh, I studied, I got a history degree from the University of Georgia. I grew up in Atlanta uh, and uh, I got a history degree. And so it was very much liberal arts and a lot of literature and history. And I was very captivated, especially with 20th century history, you know, and I wrote my uh, interesting, I wrote sort of my senior history thesis uh, research project on the hippie movement in America which was sort of preceded and, and, and came about from, according to a lot of scholars, from the, the counterculture and the beatnik movement that preceded that. And we can circle back around to Kerouac and, and uh, Ginsburg and all of them. But then I took a photojournalism class my last quarter in college, um, not really knowing what I was going to do with my, uh, for work afterwards. I was working as a breakfast cook. Uh, at a restaurant in Athens, Georgia, where I was going to school. And I took this photojournalism class and that, that sort of catapulted me into photography. And then I built my portfolio and started as a stringer or freelancer in Athens at the school paper, making like $5 a picture or something like that. And eventually over the next decade and a half, by the late nineties, I graduated in 88. By the late nineties, I was uh, freelancing for the New York Times, uh, doing some assignments for Time Magazine, uh, Fortune, 
uh, a lot for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So I was shooting news, you know, photojournalism. So mm-hmm. I always, always was interested in documenting the real. I'm not a photographer who stages things or uh, does fashion or uh, landscape as much. I'll do a landscape if it has to do with people. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I want there to be a figure in the landscape or something uh, relatable to, you know, a story about people. So, but did you always have an interest in photography? Uh, I mean, obviously, with history, you always had that, um, well, Americana and things like that. But did you always have an interest in photography? I wouldn't say so. No, actually. I mean, I, my first backpacking trip, my first sort of vagabonding, which I know is kind of like the theme of your podcast, right? Is that is vagabonding a right way to put it? Or is uh, I say hobo, but I mean, hobo is actually a migrant worker. So I'm going to have to play with that a little bit yeah i think vagabonding is probably closer to the truth so i i I think that um yeah i i my first backpacking trip i actually didn't i brought a camera and i shot like one roll so and that was 87 and then 88 i took the photojournalism class so i don't think i had taken a photography class when i was uh, like 10 or 11 and done darkroom but i really hadn't done anything with it until I took that photography class my last quarter. So I was kind of a late bloomer. I mean, I know a lot of photographers that started in elementary school or high school and did the yearbook and stuff like that. But I, Mm -hmm. you know, it was more like it just clicked. I realized that I was more of a visual person than a, a, you know, like a written person. And I always struggled with writing the papers that I had to write in history. And like photography was just a, you know, just go and photograph it. And there you go, you got it, you know, and I wanted to witness history. That's why I wanted Mm -hmm. to be a photojournalist. So I could make the images. I was captivated by the images from World War II, Vietnam War, even all the way back to the Civil War, Crimean War, you know, child labor in the 30s and 20s in America, all that stuff. You know, I had seen it all in the history books. And I realized it was, you know, documentary photographers that were out there doing that stuff, you know. A picture worth a thousand words and so on. Yeah. And, and, and also, you know, I mean, it, it's true that even in the written word that there's no absolute sort of truth that it's, it's subjective based on the writer and the perceptions and attitudes of the writer and the people that are quoted. But, you know, photography, what's also beautiful about it is if, if you don't say too much about what the picture is, is about, then the, the viewer can interpret it in many ways. And, and that's really cool that, everybody gets to write their own kind of take on the story. You know what I mean? And uh, I, I like that idea about photography, that it it can be subjective. And that's kind of why I moved away from being a photojournalist and, and, and kept doing these documentary projects. Because, uh, you know, with the photojournalism, the editors were always telling me what the picture was supposed to be of and look like, and even sometimes which way the person should face on the page and, you mm-hmm. know, all that. And with with my own documentary work, it was like a chance to weave a, a visual narrative with multiple pictures. And, and I always had this aspiration to do a book. Um, and uh, that would be pictures primarily. And, mm-hmm. and the one summer across America book that I did from writing the Greyhound, uh, which you have a copy, right? I do. I, I, I got a copy not long after I read the yeah. article. It's you'll notice if you see the book that it, there, there's just pictures. There's no, not even captions on the opposing pages or whatever. So you have to get to the back. It was really trying to create a, just a visual narrative in, you know, not just one picture worth a, thou- worth a thousand words, but actually, you know, an extended series of pictures that 
create a, a feeling of a journey and a voyage through a, a look at a particular subject matter. Uh, well, there, there was a bit of nostalgia for me because I have ridden the the the, the dog or the dirty dog, yeah. depending on how much you love it. How did you get to one summer across America? What was your inspiration? Now you've mentioned you mentioned Jack Kerouac at the beginning of the book, so obviously you're interested in on the road and that type of road journey. Right. So how did you get to one summer across America? Well, I'm going to try and keep everything concise because I, I can know I could talk about any one of these questions for 45 minutes. Indeed. Um, well, you may or may not know of the photographer Robert Frank, but Robert Frank did a book called The Americans that came out in 1950 eight or nine and he met Jack Kerouac and Jack Kerouac wrote the introduction and and uh, the Americans by Robert Frank is considered by many as sort of the equivalent in photography to on the road um, you know mm -hmm. and that's why he actually went with when he met Kerouac um, because it's a it's a very soulful poetic lonely critical look at kind of America at a time that was very leave it to beaver, just like the beatniks were sort of poking a uh, finger in the eye of kind of mainstream bourgeois middle-class America and saying, there's something wrong here. You know, this, this is not something that we really want to buy into. It doesn't make sense to us. There's something deeper that should be going on or that we have a deeper connection that I, you know, that people want. So anyway, Robert Frank's The Americans, which has an uh, introduction by Jack Kerouac, is really the genesis, the motivation. And I would say my book, One Summer Across America, is an homage to Robert Frank. And there's actually a letter from Robert Frank in the back of the book that serves as an afterword. So mm -hmm. to actually create this whole body of work and then uh, send it to Robert Frank, asking him if he would write something for me to include in the book. And that was kind of a long process by itself, but, um, but you'd have to see the, the Americans to understand that, but it's definitely the same idea of sort of looking critically, uh, you know, wandering America alone, anonymous, you know, and observing and making your own connections, that kind of freedom of the open road. You feel it definitely in, uh, the Americans and, and certainly I, I read and reread on the road and Dharma bums mm -hmm. and, several other of Kerouac's books and Ginsburg's poetry and uh, Gary Snyder's poetry as well. All the beatniks really. Yeah. But it wasn't just to document it. I mean, this is something that you hold dear to your own heart as well, right? Of course. I mean, I'm not, yeah. I mean, th that's why I did it. It wasn't like, this seems like an important thing to document. It was like something that I needed to do for myself. I wanted to make my commentary on America, you know, and, and, uh, so it's it's interesting, I think, to note that the, the 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 greyhound, the dirty dog, was a kind of choice I made not because that was the subject, but because that was uh, literally and figuratively a kind of vehicle that would enable me to photograph. I, I had no interest in driving across America like mm -hmm. you know Kerouac did a fair amount with. Uh, whatever his Dean Moriarty, the other guy that drove him around, uh, it'll come back to me. But uh, the, the bus would allow me to go out and be with people always. And every time that I stopped, I wouldn't be stopping in a gas station, getting out of my car, walking in and buying a soda and a hot dog. I'd be stepping off the bus and there'd be 
40 other people stepping off the bus and I'd mm. often be downtown in the city. And so I could, you know, get off the bus and, and, and walk through the city streets. And so it just allowed me to photograph, not just when I arrived at a place, but to photograph while I was traveling. And one other noteworthy thing that you may not be aware of is I did the whole bus trip twice. I did it in 2000 yeah. in black and white. Cause Robert, that's, I tend to shoot in black and white, not color. And Robert mm-hmm. Frank's The Americans is a black and white project. And and when I was done with it, I sent those photographs to the national desk editor at the New York Times telling him I was already working for the New York Times for their national desk. And I said, you know, I intend next summer, the summer of 2001, to go back out and buy another unlimited travel Ameripass Greyhound ticket and, and shoot mm-hmm. again and to complete a, a body of work that I'm going to make into a book. And I, I'm curious if you'd be interested in publishing, you know, a picture from the, the road of America by bus every week or a, a photo essay. And he said, oh, I'd love to do a photo essay. I mean, I can't promise you. And I said, well, would you provide me with film and processing where I could just basically ship my film to you and you would develop it and then you'd ship me more film. And, and since you're going to consider publishing it, as long as I can maintain the rights, and he said, oh, yeah, that's no problem. And he, then he said, but uh, you're going to shoot color, right? <laughs> and, and I was like, uh, well, I wasn't planning on it. And he's like, well, you know, we've switched to, you know, everything gets shot on color. I mean, we're not a full color paper, but we would love to do a color photo essay. And it has to be in color. And I remember talking to some photo friends of mine who thought that was ridiculous that I would go back and not follow my own instincts. But I, I, it didn't really matter to me, honestly. I... I kind of felt like the first summer I could build on it a second summer, but I could also mm. just go out and do it all again. I, I didn't think I would combine color and black and white. So I, I basically did the trip twice. I did it for three months in the summer of 2000. And then I did it for three or four months in the summer of 2001. Um, so Greyhound has a mystique in itself. I mean, it, how, how did you just decide it was going to be Greyhound? I mean, you say you didn't fancy driving, but you could have, I mean, you could have caught the train. You could have, I mean, there are multiple ways to get around the country. Oh, yeah, but a train, I mean, it, 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 the train is not, yeah, the bus was like, you know, really kind of the salt of the earth of America. And I, I knew oh, that. It, it's gritty. It's definitely gritty. And I knew that that's what I wanted. I wanted, I mean, train stations may be in downtowns in America too, but the bus goes a lot more places. And with that Ameripass, you can get, you know, a lot more across many more smaller and mid-sized towns where the train is very limited in the U.S. I mean, we got a pretty crappy train system. I, I suppose if we had like a European train system, I might have, I might have done the train, but the bus was definitely provided a lot of good photo opportunities of, of humanity, you know, in America. So had you ridden Greyhound before? I mean, had you had any experience with Greyhound? I, I, I mean, Greyhound yeah. from the outside is sleek and stylish and it has that uh, art deco vibe to it but on the inside it's not quite the same no i i had ridden the bus from here and there like i had gone to school in new york and took the bus like up to boston or you know a couple other times i took a bus from like atlanta to athens and you know i've definitely ridden the bus but i always had a car too so it was never my preference to be on the bus for the sake of comfort or <laughs> you know ease of, of, of movement, you know, as uh, I think it's talked about in that uh, essay or that article on uh, in Vice, uh, it's definitely mm-hmm. true that 
you could be waiting for a bus and then suddenly the guy closes the door and says, no, you're not getting on or the bus is an hour and a half late or two hours late. And, and waiting around bus stations in America at that time, it really was like a kind of purgatory. You know, I think there were some aspects in that article that nailed it perfectly. You know, it's. Oh, I, I have stories. I have ridden, I have ridden the dog yeah. and I did it from Auburn, Alabama to Missouri. And it was, it was longer to take, that seven hour drive than it was to fly from Perth to the UK. Yeah. yeah. And I, yeah, I've got, I've got my own stories, I, but I love it. I love that grittiness to it because it's, uh, um, it really is America getting into the downtown, getting into the train stations, getting to see those types of people. And obviously you wanted to see those people. Yeah. I wanted to photograph them and, and the stories, uh, that I would hear. And I, I, you asked me in one of your questions, I, I definitely kept a journal and I, you know, I have some writing about like what I was observing and how much it embodied sort of, you know, what's good and bad about America in 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 the conversations you overhear and the connections you make people that are sitting next to me that, you know, want to get out of the bus and smoke a joint in the middle of the night in a rest stop or, you know, they, they're carrying a bottle and they're passing it over to you or, you know, you're next to the bathroom and it stinks. I mean, it's just it's it's a rich uh rich experience. And I wanted that, you know? And so, like I said, it was both getting off the bus and photographing America, but also that the bus would give me a good glimpse into the, the part of America that I was interested in, you know, the kind of real America, because I, I don't, I'm not really interested in like, I don't know, upscale, whatever, a cruise ship or, you know, Las Vegas in the casinos on the strip. I, I want more something that doesn't look like it's all polished and, you know, create it to look and feel very clean and comfortable. I, I, I knew that that's not the truth about what's going on for most people in this country, you know? No, that, that that's just the veneer. Yeah. And below that, there's something else. And, and, and about the, the whole vagabonding thing, I think it's really important that that was a big, that's not, this is not the only trip I've been doing that I think I've kind of stopped more recently as I've gotten older. I feel like I've, I've kind of sown my oats or found what I was looking for, not necessarily on the road, but I spent a lot of my youth in between odd jobs and working as a freelance photographer to get out and travel, whether it was in the U.S. or abroad. You know, I've traveled a lot and photographed a lot traveling. And so there's always something really uh liberating. And, uh, you know, I, I think I, I said it in my essay in, in the one summer across America that, you know, Robert, uh, Bob Dylan said Mona Lisa had the highway blues. And I know exactly what Bob Dylan was saying, because you can tell by the way she smiles, he says in that song visions of Johanna, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's like that, that feeling of being out on the road when you go to the end of the road as far away from like whatever is normal or clean or polished or comfortable. And you're kind of really out in the depths of the, you know, the heart of darkness, so to speak, but not in like a, like a violent, dangerous way, but just more like a, you, you, you become anonymous and you become, mm. you become kind of free of like, you know, whatever you think, you're trying to do with your life you can just kind of be in the moment and as a photographer that's when the magic happens that's when i see things that kind of reflect that feeling you know that feeling of of anonymity and and openness and and kind of just being a sponge sucking in kind of what's going on around you and so 
you know, for me, that bus trip was like that. I, the second bus trip, the 2001, that was One Summer Across America that became mm -hmm. the book. I also had an intention to try to find places that I could just throw my tent or people who just uh, let me sleep in their yards or in their houses. And there were multiple places I arrived that I didn't even try to find like a, a hotel or a, a hostel or whatever that I just went up to people and asked, could I pitch my tent in your yard? You know, I did that mm. in West Virginia. I did that in a lot of different places, you know, just trying to find, you know, it was just that idea of like that hobo idea that that's what, you know, really connected me with Kerouac, you know, this idea you like hop a train and get off and sit, not that I've ever hopped trains, but that you mm. get off somewhere and you don't know where you are and you build a fire and eat a, a can of beans, that kind of thing. And you talk to somebody else that you met, uh, it's an adventure, you know, it's fun. I mean, it's not the lifestyle I'd want to live for the rest of my life. Not even then, but I, I connected with people and I admired people that I met that were living that life. You know, I met people that were traveling for years nonstop and just doing odd jobs to keep traveling. And I always questioned myself if I could do that, but I, the longest trip I ever did was, you know, like nine months or something like that. It just, that's still substantial. Yeah. I mean, I loved your introduction. I loved the way you talked about the anonymity, the freedom, the no future, no past, and just being in the moment because so much of life is planning a future or regretting the past. Yeah. You, you were there in your present and life is happening. Now, the one thing that you just talked about there that I didn't think about so much, but because you're a photographer and you're there as an observer, how distant were you from the subjects? I mean, you obviously wrote notes and obviously you had communication with people, but, but to some degree you're there to observe how, how much did it become part of your world as well? Oh, I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I wanted that distance from my life, but I mean, I, I definitely didn't mind. I wasn't trying to be distant from everything. I mean, it, it was, you know, there's a lot of pictures in one summer across America where, face fills the frame or, you know, the people are pretty mm. prominent in the frame. So like there's a couple young couple in the back of the bus that there was like, you know, there were a bunch of teenagers in the back of the bus in Montana and I'm sitting back there and they're kind of joking with me that I'm old and over the hill as a 30 year old. Something. <laughs> and, and, you know, and this, and then this young kid who I photographed with this, you know, beautiful blonde, they're both two beautiful people, Keisha and Roman is the guy's name. I don't put their names in the book, but, um, mm -hmm they met on the bus and they were clearly the prettiest two of the whole group of teenagers, which is why they were the couple. And, and then the light came shafting through the side of the bus. And I, and this kid is quoting Jim Morrison. who's like one of my favorite, you know, musicians. And he's like, yeah, I'm just going to have my kicks before the old shit house goes up in flames. And I'm like, and he's like, your generation screwed it all up for us. And I'm like, yeah, yep, yep, yep. I, I hear you. I was, I was you minus the beautiful looks and the beautiful girl, you know, <laughs> Now, 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 one thing I want to—you uh, mentioned the Ameripass. Um, yeah, it doesn't exist today. No. Could you can you explain that a little bit? And 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 how much how much did you have to pay to do the? Because uh, it was it wasn't just three months. There was a three month, six month, nine month, or something like. I that. I think well, I did a three. It? I think it was uh, according to the articles. I looked back in the article because I hadn't read it in many years, but and it seems right. There was a one, two, or three month. I don't know that they went longer. There might have been, but I did the three month. Uh, and I believe it was like 379. So it was like, it was like 400 bucks for three months. And you literally could go nonstop every day. And in fact, I, 
I did some other hitchhiking, a little bit of driving in the beginning. And I started, my parents ha had a house in, in Sanibel, Florida. And so I, I caught the Greyhound in Sanibel. And I, I think I went down to Key West first. And then when I got on the bus after spending a little time in Key West, I actually asked the guy to print out a ticket. Because you just go up the Ameripass and say, I want to go to blank. And then they'd print out a boarding pass. And then you wait for the next bus that's on that route. You know, and I... I had this crazy idea. I was going to take the bus from Miami to Seattle. I thought this will be the mm. great way to start the whole damn thing off is like go diagonally the longest distance across America, you know, from Key West to, uh, you know, Seattle. And I made it to Atlanta and that was like 24 hours. And I was back home and I got off the bus and I'm like, I'm not, I, I think I'm going to go up to Chattanooga and stop. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so it's it's 400 bucks and you could just go endlessly, you know what I mean? And I did probably 8,000 miles that summer. I mean, I zigzagged, you know, it was not 20 hour rides, 24 hour rides. I had a 40 hour ride from uh, Seattle down to New Mexico or something at one point, you know. Now, before you got on the bus, did you have a negative, positive, undetermined feeling about getting on the bus? Were they your people? Were they just people how did you feel about that did you have any preconceptions yeah i mean i don't want to i don't want to sound and i don't believe that i'm truly like uh feel like i'm better than somebody i you know it's not because like, the vice article's rough yeah i i, I mean I, if i'm being completely honest i you know it's not like i grew up having to ride the bus everywhere i went i mean i got a car when i was 16 and and you know started doing road trips in cars so but the bus for me was like, just like I said before, I feel like it's more salt of the earth and, and that's more interesting to me than sort of people dress nice. I think I kind of grew up upper middle class in America mm -hmm. in the suburbs. And, and I, there was always a lot of pressure from my peer group of like, what are you going to do for money? And, you know, and, and, and the whole idea is your status is your career, your money, your car, your clothes, you know, your good looking girlfriend or whatever. And, and to me, that all seemed so meaningless and shallow. And so that's why I was inspired by the beatniks, you know, and the hippies and that whole idea of just kind of, you know, put on some shabby clothes, like cut off jeans and a t-shirt, which is what I'm wearing right now out of my backyard. And, and mm -hmm. just kind of be among people that aren't going to judge you because you don't have a nice shirt or a nice car or a good job. It was more like a chance to kind of just connect with, people that i found more interesting to talk to than they're not stories that you'll hear every day right I mean, yeah society is very stratified here so the people that you're going to meet and the stories that you're going to hear are not stories you're going to hear anywhere else yeah absolutely i mean if you don't mind i'll try to keep it short but i i pulled out this little journal entry i don't, I don't think it might take me two minutes to read but i don't care how much time you take it doesn't bother me this is a podcast we are governed by your time yeah well you can cut things out too and get it to the length sure. you want it but um but in reading that article, it reminded me that, you know, and, and this is in my rabbit book, which we can circle back around to, but, uh, Indeed. um, but it, it's got photographs from the 2000 trip in my rabbit book. Cause that's the book is all black and white, but the journal entry underneath these photos is from 2001. And here's what it says. I'm on the bus from Pittsburgh to Memphis. There's a nasty, greasy smudge of hair oil thick like Vaseline with several pieces of stringy hair on the bus window next to the person in the seat in front of me. 
I'm surrounded by all sorts of desperate American souls. There's this blonde woman who's come all the way from Boston last night with bare midriff revealing a giant tattoo around her belly button and an air cast on her ankle. She says she has a ruptured Achilles tendon. She talks incessantly to anybody and everybody on the bus about how her man beat her. She left him. She's going to Tennessee to go to a battered woman's shelter. She's made at least five trips to the bathroom already, and we've only been on the road for two hours. I wonder what she's doing in there. There's a sweet, gentle, elderly black couple across from me, a very large, fat woman and an equally large and somewhat uh, crippled man with a straw hat, sunglasses, and a bright, flowery shirt. There's a redneck guy next to me sporting a blonde mullet, beer belly, and too tight t-shirt, and race car driver wraparound Oakley sunglasses. There's these two French guys with stylish haircuts, short with styling cream in it, spiked on the top. One of them is delicately holding a fresh, beautiful long stem rose. I wonder what the story behind that is. I could go on endlessly about the idiot behind me and his obediently silent wife. The man keeps asking me dozens of stupid questions so innocently and sincerely, really wanting to know how all of this madness riding the bus is going to work. He started in the station as we were waiting for the bus. Quote, which bus are they putting us on? Are, are we going to make it on time? Boy, this bus is going to be full, huh? On and on he goes. The beer belly mullet guy next to me keeps shifting positions every 10 minutes doing the Greyhound shuffle always searching, never finding the comfortable position to try to sleep for a couple of minutes. Now he's bent over, face in hands, crown of his head resting on the seat in front. I'm becoming more and more convinced that there's something really amazing and revealing about riding on this bus, something that's so American. It's like frozen TV dinners, dipsy dumpsters, undercooked scrambled eggs. Everybody is angry, sad, tired, sick, injured, lonely, and lost. It's like you take all the wealth and waste and greed and lust and consumption that is America and put it in a pot with chicken guts and greasy clumps of hair and chemical orange hot dogs and you let it simmer until it starts to smell like an open sewer, let it cool down for a while, try to clean it up and straighten it out into something that might pass as humanity, put it on a bus racing across America and you have something that looks and feels like the Greyhound. <laughs> I, I have felt those emotions. I have seen that scene. Yeah. <laughs> but I had a different impression of bus transport. When I got on, I had the uh, Eurorail in my mind. I had, uh, you know, the interrail going through Europe. They get on, get off, students everywhere and backpacks. And that was not, it was what you described, not um, yeah. not what I was thinking. Well, the irony is like I met uh, this, this Polish guy in my, in Key West and, and we met up and traveled later in Southeast Asia. And and he uh, took the the buses in Mexico. And then I met when I was traveling in Nicaragua once, I met these German guys that also came to America and Mexico and took buses. And they were like, God, the buses in Mexico are great. They leave on time. You buy a seat, you get an actual seat number. You know, you can choose a window or an aisle. They leave on time and, you you know, it, they give you drinks and things. And then the Greyhound is this mess, you know, like it's just, uh, you know, chaos. <laughs> I didn't meet Black America. I, I arrived in Auburn, Alabama, uh -huh. but I did not meet Black America until I rode the Greyhound. Yeah. I mean, such as the stratifications of society. Yeah. And I remember sharing a cigarette with a guy in Birmingham, Alabama. We were outside and uh, we were both speaking English, but very, very different forms of English. Yeah. He, I just come from the northeast of England. He had obviously his um, his Birmingham drawl. Yeah. And 
both speaking English, but we couldn't understand one another, but we still <laughs> shared a cigarette and enjoyed a, that evening as the sun went down. Yeah. Um, I got, I got bumped from my bus. So when you explained the, you not guaranteed a seat, my, uh, my backpack made it to Missouri before I did. No. Yeah, I know. And you got to wait, you wait in line and, 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 you know, it's everybody sort of fighting for themselves to get in line and hold that spot in line. You know, like you've got to go to the bathroom. You might be waiting for an hour or five hours in the bus station. And you know, the next bus has only got whatever it is, 46 seats or whatever. And you're, uh, you know, you're like 30 back and you're wondering how many people that are on the bus when it arrives, are going to stay on the bus, you know? And, Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a big hustle, but, but yeah, I mean, what I just read to you that, um, all those feelings I described, lost, lonely, mm-hmm. sad, you know, sick and all that. I mean, I mean, I think there's also joy. And, uh, and I, I think what's ironic about the One Summer Across America book is that it, it actually has some joy in it. I mean, in the color, ironically, while I, while I didn't intend to shoot color initially, the color added some liveliness and warmth and, and joy in it. So there's actually, it's not just a, a look at, you know, impoverished, uh, unhappy people that are forced to ride the bus. I didn't get that feeling. I, I got the feeling as a snapshot in time. And I liked the fact that you used color because the time that you took it was 2000. Yeah. And I think that fit the mood. Yeah, 2001. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking the way when you originally uh, talked about the book, you mentioned 2000. Yeah. But yes, it's it's that... Th- that early time frame in the in the, the millennium. Yeah, and, and 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 that's what I thought about too. That's what I was pitching it to people, including the New York Times editor. Was like that was kind of a pinnacle moment. Actually, America had been very prosperous again, kind of the biggest uh, decade of growth in the in the nineties, and you know, coming out of the Clinton years, and and things had really been kind of booming, and you know, everybody thought America was doing really great, and. Uh, and I, I was very interested in that idea to sort of look at America at another time, like Robert Frank in the 50s, when America was kind of, you know, considered doing really well and uh, wanting to kind of pull the curtain back at like the people that are, you know, still struggling just to try to find peace or happiness or, you know, get from point A to point B. There's definitely forgotten people, that's for sure. I experienced it uh, in my time. I mean, I came to America in 99, so I experienced it very much so. Yeah. Um, now you didn't just obviously see people on the bus, and you didn't just communicate with them. You actually went and visited towns along the right. way. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, half the book is not bus pictures. Yeah. Absolutely, it's not. I, I was. I think of the bus because I think of the stories on the bus. But obviously, you visited towns. I mean, how did how did that work out? How did you choose those towns and and the people that you met along the way? And, and obviously, you had a camera in your hand. Yeah. How do you get from? When this is a different time in America, this isn't where everybody's used to having a camera in their no, face. No, no, this was, yeah, the internet was out and that had changed things to some extent, but still people were much more open now, you know, with the internet and smartphones and all that and social media, people are even, I mean, they're, they're very cautious. I mean, if it's ironic, if you're just taking pictures with your phone, nobody pays attention anymore. It's like, mm-hmm. everybody's always got their phone out filming and, and, or, you know, videoing and photographing everything. But, but at that time I, I did carry a set of pictures from the summer before I had a little booklet I printed up. And so mm-hmm. I, I showed people that. So if people were like, what are you doing? And, and that's always been a ticket for me. I mean, I, I, I teach photography and a lot of people ask me, how do you go up to stranger? Or how do you photograph people? And, and how do you get them to be willing to be photographed? And I always say, be 
open, be accessible, be vulnerable and, and explain exactly why you're doing it, you know, and, uh, and it'll be very obvious if why you're doing it is a, kind of a, a reason that they don't like that they're not going to want to do it then. But me, I always said, I'm, I want to kind of capture the America that I, I, I know, you know, I'm trying to do a book mm-hmm. about America and, and that's why I'm on the bus because this is the America that I, I feel like is not really, you know, represented in, on TV programs or in the news. I mean, it's not some horrible, tragic catastrophe happening here, but this is just like, this is real people living their lives, you know, and I'm, I'm interested mm-hmm. in you, you know, I, I love, and I say things like that. I just love the way that you two met in the back of the bus and, mm-hmm. you know, or I, I you know, I, I think it's so cool. You know, this guy that I photographed smoking pot in his Volkswagen bus outside an old folks home in San Diego. And, and I'm like, He's like, you want to get stoned with me in my bus? And I'm like, yeah, sure, man, absolutely. And then he had this whole ritual, like, and he's got an extension cord running from the retirement home. And I'm sure he says, they're pissed off at me. I just sit out here and smoke pot all day long. He said, but we can't just smoke it. We got to do this, fill it up in a balloon. And we got to say a prayer to the earth. And and you can't let any bit of the smoke out, you know? And I'm like, can I take your picture? And he's like, oh, well, yeah, you know? And it's like stuff like that that was just so much fun, you know? And then people say, Hey, you want to, you want to come back and stay at my place, you know? And, mm-hmm. and I'm like, yeah, of course. Cause I want to photograph you more. I mean, obviously I'm sort of gauging, are they dangerous, mm-hmm. but I, I wanted that kind of like to be able to walk into people's lives. And, and I did that a lot on and off the bus, you know I mean? Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question exactly. But you didn't treat them like animals on a safari. You no. You- you treat them like human beings that had a, a story to tell and the richness that goes with that. I, I want to stray away from the Vice article because, I mean, I I like humanity in all its forms. I don't necessarily consider myself above it. I'm a working class boy. Yeah. And I thought you were very respectful of the photos that you took. You did. You just captured the humanity. Thank you. Well, I mean, I, it's important for me. I, I do not want to I do not want to feel like I'm just taking from people. And I, I, I want to feel like there's a connection that's being expressed in the photographs. If, if I'm taking a picture that feels too like hard, you know, exploitative or making fun of somebody, I, I really don't want it. I mean, I, I guess maybe the classic image, and I mean, I don't know how people are going to see images in the book, but there was a family in Pittsburgh where the the man was like fishing and the, the kid was on a little scooter and the woman was sunbathing in a parking lot underneath a freeway by the river. And, and I saw him and I, and I went up to him first and, and talked to him. And he said something to me, like, I know this looks ridiculous, you know, like uh, we're, you know, we're, we're having a recreation in a parking lot next to a river in the industrial center of the city he said, I, I work six days a week and, and this is, you know, the only day I off that I'm trying to do something for my kids, but we barely got enough money to buy our groceries. And so everybody can kind of get a little bit of what they want here. And, and I talked to him for a while and then I was like, you know, that's what really drew me to you. I thought this is really interesting, you know, and I, and I meant it. I didn't mean, mm. I think this is ridiculous or I want to laugh at what you're doing. I, I thought, you know, this is a scene that's really true and real. And, you know, and I thought of my own dad telling me stories of his dad on his one day off doing something to take the kids out, you know, and I felt like mm-hmm. this is really what, what it is that I want. And, and then I said, do you mind if I take pictures? And, and he said, no, go for it. You know, I mean, show, show the world, 
how you know working man has to like try to make ends meet to give his family a, a chance to have a little recreation you know and i'm like cool well i think people need to see that humanity as well yeah we live in our bubbles the first part of Bobby's interview. I don't want to keep the audio rolling unnecessarily, so all I can say is I hope that you found it interesting enough to download the next episode. Special thanks to Tom Joad and Kelly Weiss for providing music for the show, and thank you to you all for listening to SkippyCast. <laughs>